Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. This podcast, my website and my regular newsletters all focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance by interpreting the science and then translating it into easy to understand lessons. If you enjoy this podcast, I've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performances to the next level. And at the end of the episode, I'll explain about these benefits in a little more detail and let you know how you can join our growing tribe. All right, on to today's guests. So once in a while, you hear about a sports story that's just too interesting to ignore. And this is one of them. A couple of years ago, James Hay, known as the Cycle Coach, was asked by a charity if he could help supply seven bikes to seven Afghan girls who love cycling. Of course, he said yes. And this podcast is about that journey. Cycle racing, like many things, is forbidden by the Taliban to females in Afghanistan and to do so can have serious repercussions. Obviously, in that oppressed society, the girls felt under threat, and eventually they took the decision to leave their families. They escaped to Pakistan, spent 15 months in safe houses, and finally made their way to the UK as refugees. They've continued to pursue their passion for cycling, and three of them have a possibility of racing at the 2024 Olympics in Paris in the women's time trial event that's the story in a nutshell so let's get cracking with james and he can tell us the full story well welcome to the show james it's a pleasure to have you on yeah thanks for the invite sam i've heard that you're involved in this very very interesting project and uh, that's something i'd really like to chat a bit more about but perhaps you can give us a broader picture of your general involvement what you do you're, you're known as the cycle coach um, in the way that I am the triathlon coach. So uh, tell me what that all involves, being the cycle coach. Well, about five years ago, 2018, I um, I really fancied having a little bit of a side income, a little bit of a, a hobby and getting into coaching. So as a keen cyclist, or I was a keen cyclist, I decided to do my coaching awards for British Cycling. And yeah, I got my discipline specific with track and road. And it's just started really organically a bit of pocket money doing a bit of indoor coaching and then yeah moving into schools and before I knew it the the demand and the interest uh, for coaching school children secondary schools it started to overtake my actual main job at the time um so yeah I took that decision to leave my main job at the time I was working as a detective in the police and yeah went full-time coaching and cycle coaching based in southwest London but we work across London different London boroughs so Cycle Coach itself is is one project, but the project with the Afghan ladies is um yeah it's a it's a completely project on its own. Well, I'm interested in your business title. I had to register my domain name way back in 2000 to get that one. Um, are, are you the CycleCoach.com or the CycleCoach.uk? So it's the CycleCoach.co.uk. Sorry, dot com. Thank you, pardon. I even forgot what it was. Then yeah, it's the CycleCoach.com. Um, the hyphen cyclecoach.com um ah, so i couldn't quite get the cycle coach so someone's got that one um but yeah um cycle coach initially i thought it was just myself i could just do it it's just something as a bit of a passive income um mm. but um, yeah i ended up employing we've got about 12 coaches work for us now um working from primary schools up to the more uh, senior riders you know um 
youths, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. We don't really go into adult training. We just concentrate on on children, really. Mm. Have you left the police now, then? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was something I had a bit of an, amb- um, an ambition for years and years ago. And, um, yeah, it was a... It was a scratch that I needed to itch, and uh, it was a good experience. But yeah, long term, I was never going to stay and get the golden handshake. It was just something I wanted to try. Mm-hmm. Stressful job and working shifts and all of that sort of stuff. I don't think it's ever very good on your health when you're working nights irregularly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a fascinating job. You know, there was never one day the same. But I just found that you know, you know, the older you get, you start to realise you know time is the most important currency. Certainly not you know money and achievements. But I, I was mm-hmm. thinking, you know, follow your passion. And you know, I didn't know where the cycle coach would go. But you know, five years on, uh, the potential of going to Paris Olympics. You think, well, that wasn't a bad call, you know. And as you will appreciate, Simon, it isn't a financial thing. You know, I mean, obviously money is important, but. If you're doing something which is filling yourself, the reward from that itself is just, it's, it's quite special. Well, you need a purpose to get you out of bed every day, don't you? And um, it, money might be a purpose to start with, but um, at a certain point when you've got enough, you need something that drives you on a bit longer and a bit uh, and a bit more, don't you, I think? Yeah, I mean, you know, the old nine to five, I, I mean, I'm not, you know, um, it's not like I've not experienced that. I worked offshore in the North Sea for 20 years before joining the police. Um, so I feel like, you know, I've been accustomed to, uh, yeah, a bit of hard work. But, yeah, the coaching, I mean, as you know yourself, that can take a lot of time. You sort of live and breathe it. Um, it doesn't stop at five o'clock. You'll be thinking about plans. You'll be thinking about your athletes, how they're feeling, what's coming up. And, yeah, it, it does take a little bit of a um, organic, a bit of um, holistic sort of approach as well. It's not just, you know, um, all about numbers you do get to know the athletes, so it does start to, yeah, sort of infringe a little bit on your personal life, if you like, as well. And as the cycle coach, are you mostly concerned with teaching people how to enjoy the bikes and, and ride better rather than just um, like like what I do for triathletes where I'm really interested in helping them develop the fitness so they can achieve their racing goals? So the aim of the cycle coach when I set it up was to introduce children to the sport of cycling. You know, bikeability, it's an initiative by the Department of Road and Transports. It's all about how you navigate on the road, roundabouts, junctions, and it's road safety, essentially, your cycling proficiency. Um, so I didn't want to do anything like that. It's got a place in cycling, but I had a passion for sport and the competitive nature. So it wasn't even about improving the fitness of young riders. It was about introducing them and giving them a, a fair opportunity, you know, um, mm-hmm. Uh, underrepresented and underprivileged, let's say take Newham in London or Hounslow or Hillingdon, they're all quite, you know, um, poverty counties, uh, sorry, not counties, boroughs, beg your pardon, you know, quite underprivileged. And the chances of school children getting a chance to ride a velodrome or a road bike. Mm-hmm. So there's been an awful lot of support. And, you know, as it's gone on, there has been talent which, we, which we've identified and we've connected with local clubs like Hillingdon Slipstreamers, Kingston Wheelers. And just the, your regular cycle clubs where we can provide pathways for those children who ordinarily would never have got on a bike. I think I was 27 the first time I got on a road bike. And then you think, well, these kids, 13, 14 years old, they're riding a velodrome. And you see some fantastic, you know, flying laps. You see some elimination races, you know, um, and some of the skills and some of the times which I'm seeing. We then put them onto like a, a programme to go and represent their borough at London Youth Games. So that's like a sort of focal point in the year. Mm-hmm. 
cycle coach. And it's it's um not all kids have taken to it, but the ones that do, it might, you know, only be a couple a year and they've gone on to do good things. That's 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 what it's about for me. Do you uh, do you get involved in things like riding BMX? Because I, I know when I was little, you know, we used to mess around with putting different bits of kit on different bikes and then going around the garden and creating little jumps and then when we were old enough to go outside and ride around the woods, we'd create little tracks through the woods, um, get told off by the farmer for messing up his wood and going over the daffodils and the bluebells. But, um, you know, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd ride his bikes all day um, and, uh, you know, practice wheelies and uh, practice all sorts of different things that you could do, falling off regularly. But um, I'm sure that having those skills really helps and it gives you a lot of freedom, doesn't it? I'm, I'm, I didn't live in the city, so I'm sure things are a little different if you've got all that traffic to worry about. I was the same as yourself. You know, you grew up with a BMX at some point in your life, you know. Um, well, the, I was a bit before BMX. We had rally choppers. Yeah, I think I did back in the day. Um, I was my brother. Know, rally, the rally grifter or the tomahawk was probably as close as you got to a, um, a BMX bike. Yeah, and you, you go to the park and, you you know, the the technique of bike handling, that comes like uh, now under a category, you know, but we'd do it all day long, wouldn't we, riding in the dark mm. and, um, down the beach and various things. But no, unfortunately, um, I'm not a BMX coach, although we've got a great facility at Lee Valley over at Stratford. There's an opportunity. Sometimes we do the odd field trip if schools want to go and mm. do that, but I don't coach the BMX myself, no. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about this project with the uh, with the Afghan girls. Um We'll get into the meat and potatoes of that in a minute, but how did how did it all start? Because that seems a long way removed from teaching kids in Newham how to uh, how to ride a bike. Well, it was it was quite interesting. So it was last summer, the back end of last summer. Um, I met a guy called Jordan Wiley. Jordan Wiley, MBE. May I add? Now he's just been uh, added to the the King's Honours list. And um, I'd um, I got involved with a TV show on Channel Four called Hunted. Um, I don't know if you're a fan. I'd not actually heard of it before. I, I auditioned, but um, we filmed two series for Channel 4's Hunted, which is going to be out actually this month, 28th of March, for a celebrity. So I spent three weeks on the road with Jordan, and, you know, you get to know each other. He got to know my business, and I got to know what he did. And somewhere within them three weeks, he'd, he'd taken a note that I was into cycling and coaching. So um, he does a lot of charity work, does Jordan. And about October time, he was um, copied into an email with uh, quite a senior person from Wiggle, as you know, Wiggle, obviously, online for triathlon, cycling, running and stuff. And um, mm. what it was, it was to support a charity called Help Children Now to resettle seven female Afghan cyclists coming from Afghanistan. Um, obviously, you know, the, the return of power of the Taliban has put female um, female lives, not just in sport, but anything that's been oppressed. There's been a lot of things banned and forbidden you know, all exercise being forbidden, education is being forbidden. So Jordan was copied in this email to see if he could help supply seven bicycles for these ladies. Now, he couldn't, but he remembered our conversation. So he copied me into this uh, email chain. And that's pretty much how it started, Simon. It was um, the, the initial request was, could I support with providing seven bikes for seven female refugees? Now, what transpired it's just, yeah, it's, um, as we've chatted about previously, it's it's, it's taken a world um, of its own. So you you help provide the bikes. They're still in Afghanistan at this point, are they? 
Yeah, so um, actually these ladies had actually uh, fled Afghanistan and they were in a safe house in, in Pakistan. So they were speaking with the charity, the charity was speaking to the home office and it was, um, yeah, it was uh, it was obviously a humanitarian challenge to get them from uh, Pakistan to Afghanistan, um, quite a lot of legal uh, paperwork and legalities to get through. Then there's a cycling side, which... Um, there's a lady called Yvette Hoyle who runs the, the charity and I was running the cycling side and I didn't know what these girls were going to be like emotionally, physically, mentally, what level of cycling they've done in Afghanistan, what their objectives were. I was told that it was a female Afghan team. Um, but what's transpired is over 18 months since the Taliban took over, quite a lot of athletes have left the country. And I know that there's um, a number of um, cyclists in France Italy, Canada, and Australia. Um, and in 2020, the Tokyo Olympics, there was a, a girl called Massima Alizada, and she competed um, under the IOC refugee team. So the International Olympic Committee, as you know, in 2016, put together a refugee team to represent as a symbol of hope for refugees all over the country, uh, all over the world. And then Massima, she, she competed uh, in the individual time trial for the women's. And she came 15th. She was about 15 minutes behind 14th place, which was a Polish lady. But then there was the chat, the conversation with charity. Well, maybe we could get one or a couple of our ladies um, that are coming to the UK. Could we get them involved in the Olympics? So that's that's sort of opened the conversations now with um, over at Switzerland, the refugee team, and the Federation of Cycling from Afgh- Afghanistan. So uh, I could talk all day about all a number of different permutations and opportunities and, you know, where we're at in, in terms of ability. But essentially, the, the ladies arrived um, at the beginning of October last year. Uh, we got some fantastic sponsors on board. We got Trek Bikes in Bracknell, um, obviously not far from Reading. Um, uh, yeah, they provided seven winter training bikes. Um we got training peaks on board over in Colorado and Boulder, and then we got Zwift on board as well. So the support from the cycling community, uh, not just in the UK, but internationally, has been amazing. You know, the BBC jumped on board and they featured us on uh, BBC Breakfast. And yeah, within, I'd say, probably eight weeks, um, once the girls had acclimatised, got their housing and their homes, um, we soon realised who could cycle and who had potential. So you, you you had the seven girls. So the seven girls all went to Pakistan. I suppose while they were in the safe house, they weren't doing any cycling there, were they? Because um... exactly that, they hadn't cycled for twelve months. The diet, okay. was, um, the stress, the anxiety of not knowing where they're going to be, where from the family. You know, mm. cycling is probably the back of their mind. But we know that these girls, uh, certainly in Afghanistan and the province they were from, were superstars in their own right. Because cycling isn't a very, you know, popular sport. Mm. But it would, but it, but it wouldn't have been safe for them to stay there anyway, would it? So, and that that's a horrible choice. That I don't think people realise. You know, there's all this talk at the moment while we're chatting on the podcast about the immigration, the new immigration rules that the British government are being, and we don't want to end up like Gary Lineker being cancelled by chatting about it too much. But I, I think it's easy to say, well, they shouldn't be allowed into this country, but. Maybe when we could talk about some of the things that these um, girls have had to endure in Islamabad and to get here, you know, um, 
the decision to leave your family and all of those other things. And then and then the, the tortuous journey to get here and the sort of constantly, even probably in the UK, constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering whether you're safe. Uh, that's, I don't think any of us could comprehend that amount of stress in your life at such a young age. Well, you'll know yourself, Simon. I mean, you've done um, coaching for many years. You get to know your, your athletes. You get to know them on a personal level, you know, obviously on a professional level when you're coaching them. But you get to know their emotions when they're tired, when they're on a high. And it, it's just a roller coaster. So working with these girls since last October, you hear stories and, and you start to realise that, you know, like the scale of what they've been through. So something we take for granted to ride a bike we can ride it to the shops we can go to the park we can do a race we can do it on various different levels these girls were forbidden riding the bikes they used to dress up as men they used to ride at night time um mm-hmm. they were forbidden and it was um and when the taliban returned to power it was yeah you're not allowed to take part in any sport whatsoever so i mean with the with the, uh, the whole you know refugee status thing i mean um that's something i've not massively got involved with but I believe if it's controlled and if it's fair and it's obviously, you know, it's it's all done legally through the right lines, I think there's a place for it. You know, it's, it has to be controlled and managed. Um, and the girls have gone through all the correct routes and, yeah, resettled here in the UK now. Mm. So you've got, you had seven that came to the UK, is that right? Yeah, there's seven. So seven, seven uh, women came here. We're all cyclists. But um, we've just found through... Yeah, through training and, and various testing, who and also commitment as well, because everyone finds a level in cycling, whether it's once a week, whether it's six times a week, whether you want to go to the Olympics or whether you just want to do a local crit. And there was no obligation for me to say, listen, you've got to get to this level. We found the ladies have found their level, a natural level, and a comfortable mm-hmm. level, where they can do it as a hobby or they can do it almost full time now. So um, they are young women. And they've got aspirations of going to university and studying and, you know, working, some of them. Um, but we do have three girls who uh, we're speaking to the UCI uh, about entering Glasgow in August um, and also the International Olympic Committee and the Afghan Cycling Federation. Uh, the president of the, um, the federation is actually based in Switzerland, as you can imagine, for his safety. Um, but we've just recently been invited to the uh, Asian Road Championships over um, in in Thailand. So we're going to be doing that in June. And that's actually mm-hmm. our qualifier for both the Worlds and the Olympics. Um, so, yeah, it's it's quite an exciting time. We've got a 13-week plan coming up. Well, we're actually in it now. We just finished our first week. So the work's just begun, Simon. So they've come to the UK. What? Uh, w- What's the situation as far as much as you can disclose about how they live, where they live? Are they, do they have jobs? Um, are they just the, the three girls that you talked about that have got uh, obviously the, the ones with the most potential? Um, you know, just give us a bit of a background about um, their daily life now they're in the UK and, and what they do. Yeah, um, as you appreciate, there's a lot of sensitivities around obviously the mm-hmm. security and the safety of the girls, and not just from the UK, but obviously in Afghanistan. So, unfortunately, I can't disclose um what they do outside of cycling or where they live and i know that's probably not very good for your listeners to listen um but they are in in the uk and we meet in person twice a week um and the rest of the time they uh, are working indoors they've got you know they've got the indoor program um but yeah the girls are aged from 19 to 32 
uh, the three ladies that will be going to uh, to Thailand in June, uh, early 20s. So they're in the prime, you know, they're athletically fit. Um, nutrition's a, a huge thing, which I know we've had a few chats about and hopefully, yeah, we can have further chats and you can support that down the line. Um, but yeah, just understanding nutrition and recovery is probably mm-hmm. going to be the biggest challenge because as you know, it's not about just how hard you push the pedals down. It's um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a whole process of of getting that form for race day. So mm. that's that's my biggest challenge. We've got some good support from from other coaches, but um, yeah, I mean, emotionally, you've got to think these these ladies have left families and friends from a different country, and yeah, they've 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 got a world of um, yeah, um, logistics and semantics to deal with, not just the cycling. So. It's got to be a bit of a, a consideration there, you know, certainly when writing plans and, and pushing the athletes. Mm. So let's talk about their training then. Um, this, do they do most of the training on their indoor bikes or are they getting out on the road or is it a mix? Well, at the moment, I'd probably say it was, um, yeah, two thirds indoor and then a third outside. Um, you know, their event is going to be the individual time trial. Still not got the course details for Glasgow, not received it for Paris yet um, or Thailand. So, yeah, the blend at the moment, obviously, we're coming out of winter. We still think we're in winter looking at the weather here today. But, yeah, I mean, as you know, time trial, you know, it's very efficient to train indoors, you know. Um, I do like to get the girls out on the bikes. Um, we do a lot of sort of lower-intensity stuff in person outside um, and the, the sort of more managed and monitored and analysing the data from the work that they do indoors. You know, we've mm. got Hillingdon Cycle Circuit, which is a local uh, cycle circuit. It's traffic-free. We do lots of national, local, regional crits there. And that's a that's a mile circuit. We've also got a shorter loop. So we do some testing there as well. Obviously, that's their chance to use their mm. um, bike handling. And we can we can really look at their their power. You know, we we occasionally, every six weeks, have done a 10-mile time trial. So we just get some benchmark to see where we're at. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's, in a nutshell, how the, how the training sort of split up. Do they, how do they find the roads out here? Um, actually, how do they find the surfaces? How do they find the traffic? So, first of all, of traffic. None of the ladies like traffic at all. Um, you know, I'm not uh, a road proficiency coach, but... You know, something I take for granted going out with a group of friends or maybe yourself, Simon, and go on the bike, you know, I know you're going to stop at the, at the giveaway sign. You're not going to jump the group. You're not going to cut a corner. Um, unfortunately, their, their understanding of the highway code, is, it's non-existent. <laughs> so I've got I've got a nice little 90k loop. We just seem to do because it's nice, quiet roads and, yeah, about 400 metres of climbing. So we do that quite often just for their safety. But, yeah, they hate the traffic. They don't like the roads. They don't mind going to Richmond Park. Sometimes we train there. Uh, it's a bit quieter during the week. Um, and the road surfaces, uh, I don't know if you've cycled into Surrey and out towards Windsor. I mean, coming out of Windsor, it's probably the same as your roads in Yorkshire. Potholes, gravel. It's it's not great. Mm-hmm. It's not great. The roads in Yorkshire are lovely. They're all super smooth because, of course, we had the Tour de France here so <laughs> and the Tour de Yorkshire. Um, yeah. Although you you had the uh, ride London down there in the Surrey Hills, didn't you? So, um, but it's Essex, yeah, I think they do that in Essex. Yeah. 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 Okay. So in terms of 
your input to coaching you use I guess you're using training peaks are they familiar with using computers and getting that data up and being able to uh, communicate with you via training peaks so many moons ago Simon you probably got into cycling and triathlon as I did and it's um it's small steps isn't it you probably got your entry-level road bike then your first bike computer then you learned maybe about you know Strava and all of these things maybe got your first heart rate monitor and started to understand power as you started to get into cycling. Mm. Imagine these these girls have uh, done none of that. They've got had no data with their cycling. So it's been a bit of a baptism of fire. It's been everything. It's been training peaks. It's been there's your wahoo elements. You know, there's your wahoo kick. <laughs> there's your heart rate. This is what you know your zones mean. This is what your FTP means. So they've had an awful lot of information um, to take on board. So what I try to do is when they come and meet me here in southwest London before our um, get-togethers and our training in person. We analyse what they've done for the week. So I'll bring up the training peaks. And just by familiarisation, I'm sure the first few conversations were thinking, what am I talking about? But now they're starting to understand what an aerobic workout is and what an anaerobic workout is. And, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll actually be speaking up and say, look, I need a rest there. It's finding their level their load, their volume, you know. And as you know, a lot of it is trial and error, you know. Is it too little? Is it too much? Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, in answer to your question, their, their knowledge of data and analysing their performance was non-existent. It was just they ride the bike, that's it. There's, there's something nice and innocent, isn't there, about, about that whole um, ignorance of technology and just riding for the fun of riding. But then I think... Back to when I first started riding and going um, doing triathlon, um, we didn't we didn't have heart rate monitors. I I can remember when heart rate monitors first started getting introduced to the mainstream general population. Even then, they weren't mainstream. They were still pretty expensive to buy a polar heart rate uh, heart rate monitor that collected all the data, and it was like wearing a brick on your wrist. And uh, I can remember when power meters came out and power pedals and all of that other stuff. Aero bars, I remember getting a set of those and being laughed at by cyclists uh, for you know being a bit of a weirdo. And then a few months later, Greg Lamond wore them and everybody was wearing them. And by the end of the summer, um, I can still I've still got dozens and dozens of training diaries that I used to write by hand every night. And and I have to remind people these days, you know, look when your Garmin stops working or your heart rate monitors not transmitting data or your, your batteries on your power meter are stopped. You don't have to quit the session. You know, there were plenty of world records and Olympic champions developed before we had any of this stuff. Um, so the world's not going to end. Um, and I still think if in, in the Western world, we take it for granted that we have all this technology now, but there's probably still cyclists, some of whom might even have made their way into the Tour de France. You know, some of the African cyclists that you've heard of that are right, that are riding for the South African team that, you hear of them they just used to ride the bike up and down the hills and uh you know on a on the sort of bike that's been handed down or yeah. left left by somebody there and yet they just they just had this natural ability and um you know the fact that you can still get to a decent position without any of that technology i think is, is something we seem to overlook oh, absolutely i remember um i did a couple of ironmans uh it was a while back now but the first one was in france and there was no heart rate and there was no power pedals and there was nothing like that. And the training was, it was just do as much as you can. I worked on time, you know, I did about 15 hours last week or, or whatever it was. And, you know, when you race, you race as hard as you can. And that was my knowledge back then. It was, it was, you know, mm. very, very basic. 
But it's an interesting story. We went out on, um, it was yesterday, it was Sunday, just for our, our nice, easy cafe run, you know, a nice, easy ride. And um, halfway through the ride, I just wanted to check to see how they're doing because this first week of our plan, it's probably the biggest load they've had, the biggest TSS since since I've had them, since October. And I could see they were a little bit tired. So I just, I looked over to Mina, who's uh, our team captain. The girls call themselves the Warriors, interestingly enough. Um, it's a name they give themselves when they were in Pakistan before they came over. But anyway, I leaned over to, to, to Mina, who's the captain of the Warriors, and I, I said, what's your heart rate? And she said, oh, it's not on. And obviously she didn't seem that bothered. But me, that was like, what? Your heart rate's not on. Like, like why? She said, it's not connected. So then we had the big conversation <laughs> about how it's really important. I need that data. So following the ride, obviously you connected it there and then. But following the ride, her TSS was half of what it should have been. And then I started to explain about, you know, our ATP and all the rest of it and, and how it's important. And this is what I mean about it's like organically they're learning and they can see why it's important that, mm. that data is mm. going to help me. It's going to help them. Mm. You mentioned stuff going off for your easy coffee ride. How, how have they adapted to the coffee culture and the cafe ride? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, they're not really buying into it just now. So we'll, <laughs> we'll go for, we'll, we'll, like I say, we'll meet a couple of times a week, generally a Thursday or Friday and every Sunday. So, um, and then I tend to do the coffee after because, you know, nice steady ride. We're not, we don't need that break. And then when I ask who's up for a coffee, I get a no every single time. So then it's like, well, look, you're going to have to start to embrace this because the other guys, we like a coffee or tea. So, they're, um, yeah, they're slowly warming to it. They actually like hot chocolate rather than coffee. So um, Again, it is, it is a bit of a European culture, isn't it, this about having a, a, a coffee stop? Because I, I've got a friend who has a house in Barbados and I go out there and spend a couple of weeks with him in, in, the, uh, in the winter and we cycle around. And, I, and before I got there, he, he goes out several times a year. And I said, right, well, your goal, I was a bit disappointed about the lack of coffee stops. So I said, right, your goal before I come out next time is to try and find some cafes for us to stop. And he said, there isn't any. I'm like, what do you mean there isn't any? There's got to be some, there's got to be some cafes where we can start stopping. He said, there's the garage. And then we have to sit outside on a plastic table or we can sit inside in the air conditioning. And I was, I was astounded by his lack of enthusiasm for finding, <laughs> for finding these cafes. Uh, so when we went out last time, we were riding round. We found one lady that was um, at the top of this hill, which was great because it from there it meant we got a nice ten k descent back down to the back down to the house. But <laughs> it just isn't any, and there's a yeah. lot of cyclists out there, and they just don't stop for coffee. Well, I, I can't imagine the conditions and the environment the ladies rode in Afghanistan, but there certainly wasn't coffee shops and coffee stops. So yeah. it's a. Uh, everything's brand new i remember the first time i got the site and i bought kit from aldi you know i got an entry-level road bike and mm-hmm. you slowly build it up and then you, you compare and you look and see what bike he's got she's got um girls have had a, a a rough ride you know um they've had a rough time um but the support they've got from trek and yeah training peaks and and other companies like that um as an entry-level cyclist that's what i would say an entry-level cyclist certainly in the uk mm. It's, it's only things that I could dream of, you know, and I'm sure yourself, you know. You talked about all the other stuff that goes into helping athletes achieve peak fitness. Um, you know, there's the, obviously the biological side, which is the, 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 you know, not only the physiology of the athlete, but also the way in which they respond to training and their genetics and their body type and all of that sort of stuff. But then there's, 
there's there's the um, emotional side. Mm. Um, there's the existential, you know, your purpose for being here. Um, there's that whole thing about sleep and recovery and, and mental health. Um, and I'm, we're forever hearing about how important um, those things are for elite athletes. And, you know, you've talked about getting these girls to Paris in 2024. So that is an elite level of cycling. Do you have you talked to the girls about um about those things about the environment they live in about about sleep because i guess if you if you've had the sort of scary previous years that these girls have had those sort of things that are in your head don't leave you straight away just because you go to another country and so getting decent sleep and managing the stress levels and their emotions must be really hard as well so is there anything that you do as a coach to help them out with that um to enhance the training responses I think I think one of the big things is obviously there's a cultural sensitivity. I'm a lad from the northeast, you know. I'm a white working class um, working class lad. These ladies are Muslim females from Afghanistan. Not mm. only have they left their country, which has been oppressed and taken over by a Taliban, they've left their families. So you mentioned about emotional stress and you know how that might impact on their training. You know, to have that awareness that look. Cycling's a part of their life, but the other part of their life is they've, they've resettled in the UK. Um, they're away from their family. They're in a strange environment, you know, comfortable, but very strange. Um, and quite a lot of information to take on there with a new culture, never mind a new cycle coach and new objectives. So one of the things I'm mindful of, Simon, is, you know, while I'm data-driven and, you know, really want to get these, these girls to, to Paris and, and Glasgow UCI, um, I don't know. I'm sure you've got friends that are really into the data and really tech-driven. Um, I certainly do. And I've been cycling nearly 20 years now. But when they talk to me, sometimes it's just too much. I just think, oh, goodness me, will you like, just like, it's too much. You know, you can kind of talk and talk and talk and talk too much. And the last thing I want to do is overload the girls. So I'm mindful of that. Um, and it's almost like drip-feeding them the important stuff. We talked about nutrition and recovery. Um, you know, I could tell you a funny tale. Um, <laughs> there's assumptions made, isn't there, with certain athletes? Because when you first meet them, you expect them to have a basic understanding of, mm. you know, um, pre-training uh, nutrition, post-training nutrition. Um, so one of the first rides we did, I'd, uh, I'd sent a message on our WhatsApp group to make sure they fueled well the night before. They had a good night's sleep. They were well hydrated. And when they turned up at my place, um, we just had that conversation. We just said, um, what have you eaten? this morning and they kind of looked at each other and well we haven't eat, eaten okay so then I went in the kitchen and started cooking some eggs and some breakfast and got some porridge out and then you know the next week I'd emphasize that same again we need to eat make sure you, you eat mm -hmm. um, and ask the question what did you have to eat this morning and the, the same kind of bit smoking a little bit happier themselves and and they said oh we had some biscuits this morning and I, then I, it was at that point I sort of chuckled, but it was almost in disbelief that that side of something, um, the nutrition side, that is an education in itself. I mean, I'm a cycling coach. I'm not a nutritional coach. And to to for them to adopt that, that's going to be a project in itself, you know, mm. and I'm aware that the, the clock's ticking to Paris. Um, so it is a steep learning curve. So I've been careful not to overload them with information. Um, but I'm sure you know from your own athletes, Simon, when 
they come to, to a training ride or you might be speaking to them online or whatever it may be, there's external factors which will impact on your training. Um, and I'm talking about a couple of weeks in, they just arrived in the UK and we weren't doing hard sessions. We were riding around Hillington Circuit. Um, one of the girls that speaks better English asked if we could have an easy session because we've had a rough week. And I was pulled to one side and, I mean, we weren't doing any sort of data-driven stuff. It was just, we were just riding in a group and we're doing a little bit of chain ganging just to try and pick up the mm-hmm. pace. And then it occurred to me that we needed a conversation, you know. I wanted them to understand that cycling was their way of escaping. They're, they're a bit of respite from all the external factors that go on. For a couple of hours a week, let's park whatever you can, as best you can, at the door. Mm-hmm. We're going to focus on cycling. We're going to focus on being a team. We're going to focus on having a bit of fun. And because for the rest of the week, you go back to the heartache of being homesick, being away from your family, not knowing where the next home is, not knowing if you're going to get into university and all the other stresses. So I've tried to adopt an approach. Well, look at this as a fun time in your week. Park what you've got there. And, you know, if you can focus on the cycling, hopefully the rest will take care of itself. Mm. Do you find that they're getting seduced by other elements of Western society that perhaps they didn't have access to before, you know, social media, um, Netflix, that sort of stuff, you know, yeah. um, where, where they're living, the access to the TV that's on all the time with multi-channels and then the temptation to sit up all night watching that when they should perhaps be getting some sleep before the next training ride. It's interesting. I, I, I occasionally send a late text, um, maybe a little bit of sneaky beaky work here, mm. just to see who's reading it. And yeah, it's uh, it's something I've been mindful of. You know, if I send a message before midnight, just before midnight, and they're all reading it, I'm thinking, well, are they going to bed now? Or are they going to be up for another hour? And um, that that wasn't planned initially, but then it just started to occur to me that yes, mm. they've got Netflix accounts. Yes, they've got social media. Um, the charity who spearheaded this whole campaign to get them here have been quite protective before the press release because of their security and well-being, not just for them, but for the family. So their social medias, they don't post. They've got it and they look and they have that. Um, but, yeah, it's there's definitely, I mean, these girls are uh, Muslim athletes. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they live very clean lives. Diet's something which we need to improve. But you're right, there's so many external factors, isn't there? Yeah, and that's, that's an amazing, I mean, for me, I'd be, you know, particularly as I'm getting more into sort of health and well-being coaching um, alongside my triathlon coaching. This, that would be a really exciting prospect for me, but it's a huge job. And it will be a huge job for somebody who is from a Western society, for somebody who's also being challenged by a complete change in culture and education and, and just lifestyle. Uh, you know, as a coach, you've got so many plates that you're spinning um, yeah. Just to just to walk these, like must be walking them through a, a minefield of distractions and things that you wanted to now come away. You know, like like, like getting a little puppy that wants to go off exploring everything, and you try to get them focused on this this particular task here, which I'm sure they're motivated to do. But they're, they're human beings as well, aren't they? So it's it's almost impossible not to be attracted by all these shiny new things. It's um, I mean, I've never coached an international athlete before. I've never been, you know, uh, on a Zoom call with someone from the Olympic Committee or the UCI or the National mm. Cycling Federation. So it's a big learning curve for me. And for me to kind of give that advice of this is what you should be doing, a lot of it is there's expectations from myself. I've been reading, I've been speaking to people. So it's a big learning curve, but you're quite right. You know, these seven girls that came over, 
I didn't know their background. I didn't know what level we were going to find. But when the chat of Paris was mentioned, and initially it was to enter the refugee team, um, but as it's as the project's gone on, um, the National Federation of Cycling for Afghanistan, uh, they've, they've been given uh, permission to represent, uh, sorry, put forward athletes to represent Afghanistan under the Afghanistan flag, which is fantastic because mm-hmm. if you had the choice to represent GB on refugee team, you, of course you'd be happy to get to the Olympics, but you'd want to represent GB, I'm guessing, Simon, you know. Mm-hmm. These girls feel exactly the same. So that driver for themselves, you know, yes, they're doing it from a sporting perspective, but they're also doing it from like... Um, they're doing it for like for a message and like a, a symbol of hope for all the other women that are there in Afghanistan that cannot get over Afghanistan that have been suppressed and oppressed that cannot take part in sport. And if I can get one athlete to that level, the World Championships or um, the the Olympics, that is a message. That's a message right there. That look, this isn't like a wild card entry. They've done it on merit. They're doing it for their country, and that's for me is the biggest the, the biggest driver for these girls. I can go all day long about data and I can steer them where I want. But a few of the girls, there's two girls in particular, I've got a lot of heart. And you know yourself, you know, there's a physiology side, but then you've got your mind and you've got your heart. And if you can put your mind and your heart to something, you've got that tenacity and that commitment, you know, you've got a good chance at anything, I think. So this project, James, when you started the cycle coach in 2018, I guess this this would never even been a part of your horizon that you might might be able to uh, get involved with but being involved with these girls and you know not just the cycling but also understanding what they've been through how, how has that changed um you as a person and the way you coach um i think i think this project is as as great as it is it's a distraction so obviously the day-to-day coaching that i did with schools it, it definitely is you know the like the business itself is you know um, my hands-on coaching with the actual bread and butter of the, the business has, has changed completely. I probably only do a couple of sessions a week, tops, you know, from steering their business to business development to marketing it. And it's, it's totally engulfed and taken over. And it's not a complaint. It's something I'm very privileged to say that I'm part of. Um, so how has it changed? Well, it's changed because um, I realised that as a level two coach at the time, I needed to... I need to push forward. With my, I need to improve myself. If these girls are going to improve themselves. I need to step up. I need to educate myself. I need to understand. I need to reach out. Uh, I spoke to Training Peaks. Training Peaks put me in touch with yourself, Simon. This is why we're connected right here today. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe in, it's going to sound corny, but in, in educating and growing yourself. If I was so interested to say, look, this is my project. I'm the coach. I'm going to get these girls to Paris and do it single-handedly. I may or may not get there, but for the greater good of these athletes to reach out to a cycling network, a community that understands strength and conditioning, nutrition, um, a specific training might be time trial or, or whatever it may be, that's mm. only going to better me and better the girls. So I believe in building a stronger team. So I suppose the short answer is um, I've just opened my eyes a little bit more and just reached out to a wider network, if you like, for my coaching. And any idea what you know obviously you've got your hands full and your mind full of stuff going forward to august is it august 2024 
So we've got June, um, we've got June, the Asian Road Championships, where they'll represent Afghanistan for the very first time against Japan, China, Thailand, all of Asia. Then we've got August this year, um, if they qualify at the qualifiers in, in Bangkok, they'll then go to Glasgow and do the women's time trial there for Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And then it'll be next summer, um, next August. Um, I think it's August or is it July? I think the games is like a four-week block, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, that'll be next summer, um, 2024. So there's lots of room for improvement, you know, 12 months will come around pretty well. It's a bit more than 12 months, but we need to be in good shape in 12 months. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of, you know, what we call B and C races, which are local and regional races. Um, but I think it's just it's just balancing it's balancing their, their, their life commitments to their sporting commitments. Mm. Start university in September this year. That's going to impact. We'll get qualification or not this year, then that's going to be a game changer, you know, with studying. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, another thing, you know, it's, um, it's, it, it's, it's a very real thing. You know, the month of Ramadan, uh, the girls, because of their religion, will be fasting. So, you know, during the daylight hours, nutrition, mm-hmm. they won't be eating or drinking. Um, it's something I've spoke to them. It's an individual choice. It's a choice which is respected. It's their religion. Um, I've spoken from my knowledge of nutrition about how that will and may impact your training. But we're working with, um, uh, it's a female Muslim cycling group called Evolve Cycling, uh, and they're based in Hemel Hempstead. Um, we reached out to a lady called Ifat Tajani, and she's the founder and head coach there. So when we first started the project, she was great, um, a great contact to have, obviously, the, the cultural sensitivities of having a female Muslim coach. And, and if that's been great in relation to, yeah, providing that advice and a little bit of guidance, you know, to accommodate such things as Ramadan. Mm. As Muslim females, do they find it slightly contradictory to be cycling in Lycra when they go out? Um, or do they feel that that's what's necessary in order for them to be cyclists? Or do they, is there some still some decorum and etiquette that they follow as, as being, you know, practicing Muslims? I mean, I'm, I'm personally learning all the time, you know. I never, you know, um, profess to know everything about the religion. But as I'm working with the girls, I'm starting to understand a little bit more of what, um, what is adhered to and what these girls adopt in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, the religion of Islam, uh, you know, is, is worldwide whether you look at track athletes or cyclists, you know, or even swimmers, there's, um, there's athletes which have competed at the highest level. And I, I, I can certainly accommodate, the games can certainly accommodate their, their dress. Um, Lycra isn't against their religion, you know, providing they've got their arms and legs covered. You know, the ladies wear hijabs uh, under the cycling helmets. We've had some conversations with Wiggle, and Evolve, because Evolve, obviously, they've got a lot of Muslim female cyclists. Wiggle, as you know, huge online company. They're looking at designing um, a hijab, which is uh, almost like streamlined, completely aero, if you like, you know. So it's not rocket science, but, you know, there's going to be challenges. We've had conversations. Look, when we go over to Thailand, you're going to have 35 to 40 degree heat. Mm. You're going to be working at your top end of your power and heart rates for, you know, up to an hour, depending on the length of the race. 
um, in heat and you're going to have every bit of your skin covered. This is, it's a consideration, you know, and I would never, ever compromise that. This is a decision for them. Um, you know, there's like, for example, there's two female athletes in Italy. They're actually sisters, uh, a lady called Fariba and her sister, Yuldos, if I've pronounced that correctly. And they're pro um, female cyclists, the, the race for the Israeli team. Um, and their choice is to wear short sleeves, short sleeve jerseys mm -hmm. and bib shorts. But that's their choice. I don't know what their religion is. Um, I know they're from Afghanistan. So everything is, it's, it's, it's an individual choice, you know? Mm. Well, I, I mean, it, we talked about purpose at the beginning of this call and purpose as a coach. I can see that this, this is a different purpose altogether, isn't it? Because it's not just about get, it's not just about helping athletes to see if they can represent the country, maybe get to the Olympics. There's, there's something else about this that goes beyond even just working with females cyclists in this country. It's, it's people have been disadvantaged, people have been, you know, horribly mistreated, and yet they've got this chance at freedom and being able to express themselves and doing something they love. It must, uh, it, it must give you a, a great sense of satisfaction. Uh, at the end of each day when you sort of think about what, what you've achieved and uh, and what you can help them with. Absolutely. I mean, these these girls are new to the country. They're pretty much new to what we know as the sport of cycling. You know, the cycle in mm. Afghanistan. But our coaching methods, no respect to Afghanistan, it's a different level. You know, the, um, the British team, the GB team, um, the Netherlands, Australia, the US, the French, the Italian, you name it, they European cycling is in a league of its own, you know. Um, mm. Afghanistan is 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 different. So for me, you know, when I see these girls and I and I see them improving, and again back to the data, when I see their you know the threshold increasing, whether it's their heart rate or whether it's their power, and I can see that you know their volume is increasing and just the way they're adapting to it, um, it's fantastic. You know, it's it's just um, it's a real buzz for me. You know, and when I give the feedback and you know, you know, give give the praise, sometimes I don't think they they realise how chuffed I actually am. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? You know, whereas yeah, I've been training before, and you know, whether it's my cycling days or when I used to roll, if a coach gives me some feedback and it's positive, um, the slightest bit of positive news, you take it, don't you? You remember it. You go mm -hmm. home and think, as you would do with the sort of the constructive feedback. You'd really probably analyze. You might have a sleepless night, or you think, "How can I do better next week?" Go on your mind. Um, but with, I suppose, with the feedback to the girls, you know, the the constructive feedback, um, and sometimes you know corrections, or we must do better, or we can't do this. Um, I do believe that they do take it. Like, I mean, they want to impress. That's the first thing, and you can see that they take everything on board and listen. Certainly, the three athletes we've got going to Thailand. Um, so very receptive of that. So that as a coach, and I'm sure you're the same, when you know an athlete's receptive and makes them adjustments and gives you the correct feedback um, or feedback which is encouraging, that certainly makes me, yeah, a happy coach, if you like. Uh, well, James, I'm really grateful for you to coming onto the show and sharing all of this with us. It's a, it's a fantastic story. And we're going to put all the links into the show notes so, so that myself and all the other folks who are listening can keep track on your progress on the progress of the girls and hopefully there'll be a, a really happy ending um, to this story when we get to Paris in 2024 with at least one of the girls maybe rolling out onto an Olympic start line.
that would be fantastic. You know, we've, we've got a lot of things to come up before then, but I'm sure with the right support, you know, um, and the, the tenacity these girls have got, yeah, watch your space. It's um, but it's been nice to share with you. Yeah, James. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Thank you again to James for joining me as a guest on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. I know it's not a triathlon story, but I did feel that this was too interesting, a human story not to share. And on reflection, I feel truly grateful for what we are able to enjoy safely and happily in the UK. I hope you do too. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. Now, if you remember back to the introduction to this episode, I mentioned the benefits of our membership program, which include access to a growing library of training plans for endurance events, covering a whole range of endurance sports such as triathlon, duathlon, aquabike, swim run, Xterra, Grand Fondo cycle races, ultra trail runs, marathons, as well as more focused plans to help you build mobility, strength, and boosting specific aspects of your fitness like functional threshold power on the bike or CSS pace in the pool. We also offer monthly exclusive workshops for our SWAT members. We have free access to educational workshops on nutrition, sleep, strength and many more. We have a growing range of partner products where you can get discounts that I believe on and on these products I truly believe in them. I use them myself before I ask them if they'd like to partner with me and I don't get paid to promote them. So if you'd like to learn more and access these member-only benefits, please visit my website, simonward.co.uk. And you can click on the Work With Me button. You can also find an obvious link in the show notes below. If you'd like to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as The Triathlon Coach or Triathlon Coach. If you're going on to iTunes again, please could you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts and you will find a link for that in the show notes below as well. Okay, that's all for this week. I hope again that you enjoyed the podcast and I'll see you on the next episode.